0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe show. Very nice. A little different tonight, but in the was, office, you know?
1: It was. It was a little different. There was, there was um, a different quality to it. It was a subtlety tonight.
0: It was I a subtlety. Was. Well, I, I feel as though I might be disturbing other people in the office because there are people in the office tonight.
1: <laughs> well, so I kept,
0: I, it, I kept it on the down low a little bit. Literally. I got it
1: I, it sure was. They're working late tonight, Mark. That's, that's yeah.
0: good. That's yeah. a committed,
1: committed team there.
0: So, what are we going to do tonight, Dr. Joe?
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't mean to be sort of obsessive about reading from Unleashing, but I wonder if you guys would be interested in reading uh, another story from it called My Five O'Clock Patient. I'll just give you the background. This was, again, one of the patients that I had as a <laughs> third year resident. Um, And it was a remarkable, remarkable introduction to this particular world and also made me wonder about free will. And do we really have free will? And I absolutely think we are not deterministic by our genetic structure, that we absolutely have choices to make every moment. So if you guys would like to, why don't we start?
0: So I will begin chapter nine my five o'clock patient. Rob was an hour late for his first visit. We barely had time to talk and make another appointment as my next patient was in the waiting room. Rob was an hour late for his next appointment. Once again, we hastily made another time, his apologies profusely and ardently convincing me to give him one more try. We set a time and I made sure to make him the last patient I would see on that day. Rob assured me he would be there promptly at 6 p.m. By 6.30, I was given up hope. By 6.45, or what would be the end of my regular session, I began to close down the office, but decided to wait a few more minutes, check my messages, write a note, skim an article. While going to the bookshelf, I glanced out the window to see Rob getting out of his car, begin to walk to the office door, look back at his sedan, inspect its position, move his arms apart, holding his hands in an extended position of exasperation, shrug his shoulders, walk over or unlock the door, get back in the car, then begin a two minute sequence of reversing, moving forward, putting on the parking brake and getting back out. He scanned his car now, neatly parked, checked his wristwatch and literally ran from the lot into my building. I heard the elevator start its moaning descent from the third to the first floor. As it drew more distant, its sound was masked by the rapid and methodical pounding of feet on the stairwell. Rob was running up two flights to my office. Suddenly the steps stopped. I heard a curse, but not the thump of a body falling or tripping.
2: Then I thought I heard Rob reverse his course, go bounding back down the stairs, and then back up again. This time he made it to my office door and rhythmically knocked a request to enter. Bent over and panting, he reached up a hand when I offered a greeting, waved it but did not shake, and, gasping, walked into the office. He sat heavily in the chair that was obviously where patients sat, and I sat across from him, waiting for him to have breath steady enough to talk. So what's the story, I asked him. Words staccato with intermittent deep and shallow breaths, Rob began to tell me his chronicle. Rob had obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. OCD is not the same as... as obsessive compulsive personality disorder, OCPD, where people derive pleasure from having their shoes all lined up perfectly, or their beds neat and crisp with military corners, or the interior of their car pristine, or any other number of preoccupations with being orderly. People with OCPD struggle with others for control, may have difficulty expressing warmth and emotional intimacy, and like other personality disorders, seem to bother people more with their rigidity they are bothered themselves. OCD is very, very different. This is not about consciously or unconsciously making other people suffer. This is about feeling overwhelmed with anxiety that something horrible will happen to yourself or someone else if you don't precisely follow some ritual. A ritual that makes perfect sense to you on one level is crazy on another level, and to another person is obviously senseless. Rob had OCD. He never intended to be disrespectful or try to control the session by coming late. He didn't like being late for every appointment, with me being late to work, the hours it would take before he could go into a supermarket, missing dinner with his wife.
0: Rob truly believes something catastrophic would happen if he didn't, if he didn't, something really, really bad. If he couldn't say what? He paused in his history, He knew that what he was about to say really did sound crazy. Part of him was incredibly ashamed. OCD is about secrets. Secrets. Usually shameful. And as with any secret, usually not about the secret itself, but about how will someone else view me differently if they know my secret? In OCD, a person begins with an obsessive thought like, something horrible will happen if I do something wrong or don't do something right like the children's phrase step on a crack and break your mother's back some people with ocd will have to step unbelievably carefully as they walk down the pavement truly fearing that if they step on a crack or don't step evenly with their left and their right foot or if they don't parse out or if they don't parse out a particular number of sequence of steps before they go to the end of the road that a catastrophic event will occur. And they have to start over, walk the path again, but this time get it right. And if they don't, then they start over again, and again, and again, until the anxiety that is built up is finally relieved by getting it right. The right sequence, the right rhythm, the right, the right, the right something. Here he was sitting in front of me, finally on the third shot. OCD is peculiarly personal, embarrassing, and crippling in its extreme. So tell me about your OCD. Symmetry, sighed Rob. It's about symmetry.
2: Running up the steps, Rob had stumbled slightly, and his left foot came down to what he perceived to be to the right of the step and not directly in the middle. He could not overcome the dread and anxiety that built up, so he had to do the steps over. That didn't take up too much time, I said. Pretty good that you only had to repeat once. Steps I can get over pretty quick. There's more. There's more. Go on. Parking. I remember seeing him get out of the car, then back in, then back out, just before he became barreling into the building. I have to get the car exactly in the middle, between the lines. It could take me an hour or more to park. Rob was convinced that if he did not park perfectly between the lines, something catastrophic would occur. He could not say exactly what, but his anxiety would build and build until he simply had no choice but to adjust and readjust the car. He would park, get out, examine, get back in, and repeat this ritual over and over. He was always late, even if he arrived on time. Our session was over for that evening, and we made another appointment. I told him to come back the next week at 5 p.m. I booked another patient for 5 and put Rob in for 6. The next week, Rob showed up on time. Six o'clock. We worked on addressing the anxiety he experienced with his parking ritual. We went out to the car and he showed me, reluctantly at first, because he had spent an hour parking the car just right. The ceremony that absorbed his time.
0: We talked about the anxiety that built up and the as yet inaccessible catastrophe that he was averting by parking and reparking his car. Over the next several months, Rob never missed his five o'clock appointment. He learned and applied the basics of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBD. He began to truly recognize the legitimacy of rule number one, that what you think affects what you feel. That if you think about something that makes you sad, you feel sad. If you think about something that makes you happy, you feel happy. And if you think about something that makes you anxious, you feel anxious. You can't change what you feel, but you can change what you think which then will help you change what you feel. In some ways, this has to do with evolution. Human beings were driven by emotions long before they developed the capacity for higher intellectual function. In other words, we were guided by the ancient limbic parts of our brain and gradually developed the neocortex, the new brain, especially the frontal and prefrontal codices where executive function lives. The rational decision-making part that distinguishes us from other animals one way to think about this is that the frontal lobe is much more accessible than the deeper more primitive limbic system cognitive thinking behavioral action therapy capitalizes on the power of thought over emotion in this case the power of rational thought over irrational limbic response although the initial thought that created the sense of dread and rob if he did not park his car between the lines, was elusive. He was able to recognize the second rule on the path to controlling his anxiety. That anxiety is like a wave. It goes up and it always comes down, always. The human brain is simply not designed to sustain intense anxiety for very long.
2: But if what you think affects what you feel and you start to feel anxious and think, oh my god, I'm anxious, this is horrible. It's just going to get worse and never go away. What do you think happens? Right, you get more anxious. Isn't that the coolest thing? Without realizing it, if you really buy into the concept that what you think affects what you feel, you are already in control of your anxiety. It's just that you were taking it in the wrong direction. What you were thinking, my anxiety is never going to go away, is making the anxiety worse. In fact, if there were an Olympic event for the person who could make themselves the most anxious, I told Rob he would have won hands down. I use this technique a lot when working with a patient with anxiety. Humor can go a long way, but always being respectful. I use the following image with Rob. Olympic flags are fluttering in the floodlights of Olympic Stadium. Swiftly ascending the stairs, coming back down after a quick curse, and then ascending them again with more caution and ritual, Rob finally stands at the top of the podium. He bends at the waist, offering his neck to the official as the crowd roars, USA, USA. Rob proudly pulls himself erect, the Olympic gold dangling from his neck. OCD starts with an obsessive thought, which creates anxiety. The anxiety leads to a compulsive behavior, in Rob's case, having to park between the lines. When the behavior is complete, the anxiety decreases. However, the anxiety came back the next time Rob had to park. His brain was conditioned. Does the name Pavlov bell? And Rob knew what he needed to do to relieve it. Park exactly, symmetrically, perfectly between the lines. Whew. Until the next time.
0: What you think affects what you feel. Think about something happy, you feel happy. Sad, you feel sad. Anxious, you feel anxious. Your anxiety is under your control. Rob began to recognize that he was thinking thoughts that make it worse. Anxiety is a normal part of being a human. It is the flight branch of fight and flight. When faced with perceived danger, we quickly assess if we are strong enough to fight and win. If so, we may activate anger, approaching the danger with the intention to get the dangerous thing to change. If we do not think we are strong enough to win, we run. The problem is that fear can be subtle and insidious, activating our flight response before we even know it. We may think thoughts so automatically and instantaneously, we may not even be aware we thought them. All we experience is the anxiety telling us to get away. Rob had automatic thoughts. What you think affects what you feel. Change your thoughts, you change anxiety. I taught Rob a simple technique to manage his anxiety. What I call the four R's, recognize, rate, remember, reflect. Recognize that you are anxious and don't avoid it. The biggest mistake people make when they feel anxious is to try and avoid it. They distract themselves. That's exactly what anxiety is designed to do, flight. Unfortunately, when you do this, you teach your brain you are not strong enough to deal with anxiety, so you have to avoid it. If you don't think you're strong enough, what do you think happens to anxiety? It gets worse because what you think affects what you feel. Apply the first R right now. Recognize the changes in your biological domain that happen when you start to become anxious. Does your heart beat faster? Do you get a funny feeling in your stomach? Do you get the cold sweats? Or do your muscles tense up? These are actually elegantly designed biological domain responses to flee from that predator.
2: Blood is diverted to your muscles so you can run. To do this, your heart has to beat faster and travel faster to your arms and legs. So your blood pressure increases. But we don't just make more blood. That blood has to come from somewhere. So it is diverted from the gut because there is no point digesting lunch if you're about to be lunch. That's where that sick feeling comes from. And blood is diverted from the skin cooling you down so that you don't overheat in case you have to run far to get away, the cold sweats. Recognize these feelings and think, I know what this is, it's my anxiety. Recognition is a thinking function. So you have already begun to shift your brain into the prefrontal cortex, the bastion of rational thought which you will use to manage manage your limbic anxiety. Now, rate your anxiety between a one and 10. Notice I don't say zero. Human beings are never at zero. We are always at a low-grade anxiety called vigilance. We are aware of our surroundings. It's about survival. Rating is also a thinking function. I asked Rob to rate his anxiety right then between 1 and 10. 12, he immediately said. Really? 10 is panic, the most anxious you have ever been. Are you really panicking right this second? Rob paused, took a deep breath. I guess not. You guess. You don't know. Guessing is another avoidance. You're so good then. So what's your anxiety, really, between one and ten? Rob paused again, reflecting. Yes. He was shifting his brain from the limbic to the prefrontal cortex.
0: Okay, Dr. Schran. Not a twelve. I know. I know. No higher than a ten. It's not a ten, but it really is a seven but not a 10. Now do the third R. Remember, anxiety is like a wave. It goes up, but always comes down. Always. You just proved it. If you think your anxiety will never go away, what do you think happens? It never goes away. Or it gets worse because what I think affects what I feel. Yep, your anxiety is under your control and always has been. You've just been thinking thoughts to make it worse. How cool is that? Rob reflected as I went on. If you think anxiety is out of your control, you are going to be more anxious. But when you recognize it has always been in your control, what do you think happens? You get less anxious because what you think affects what you feel. This step now begins to merge your PFC and limbic system, the part that is responsible for memory. You have conditioned your brain that you have to do that action to relieve that panic, which stems itself from the limbic system. It's as if your limbic system has taken control of your PFC, prefrontal cortex. Now you do the fourth R, reflect. What was I thinking to begin with that made me feel anxious? I explained to Rob that this is the hardest part of the four R's because it may be difficult to identify anxiety-provoking thoughts. Why? Because those thoughts are designed to make you avoid something. In this case, the very thought that is making you anxious. I explained that. For every thought that increases anxiety, you can construct an opposite one to, de- to decrease anxiety every time.
2: You just have to create them and then practice them. This fourth R, reflect, combines limbic memories with PFC rational thought shifting the locus of the brain control back to what you think. It is crucial that you do the four R's in order to manage your anxiety and put your PFC in charge. Rob paused and said, But Dr. Schrandt, I'm afraid of dying. You know I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. What's the opposite thought to that? Rob, as long as you're thinking about it, you're not dead. What? Every time you think you're going to die, it means you are alive. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Right. It took several sessions for Rob to recognize how much he was actually in control of his own anxiety. After all, if what you think affects what you feel, Rob was really in the driver's seat of his anxiety. However, the initial anxiety of provoking thought was still elusive. Even so, he became very skilled at recognizing his anxiety, rating it on his own personal anxiety scale between 1 and 10, then remembering that anxiety is like a wave that it goes up, but always comes down. Rob learned that anxiety is never a zero. Human beings are biologically designed to experience anxiety. Indeed, if several hundred thousand years ago, one of our hominid ancestors fell out of the tree and looked around thinking, this is nice. I'm out of the tree. But did not experience anxiety, it could be lunch. Some other animal would come along and eat it.
0: But the ancestor who fell out of the tree and said, crap, I'm out of the tree, and got the hell back up there, well, that ancestor lived another day, had babies, and those babies inherited the anxiety gene environment complex that told them to get back up in that tree if they fell out. In this case, anxiety is protective. For humans, the low-grade anxiety level one is called vigilance. Consciously or subconsciously, we are aware of our surroundings, an ancient and primitive protective device against being lunch however imagine that same ancestor is up in the tree getting hungry it spies a mango easily within reach no chance of falling out of the tree so it reaches over and grabs it yum good mango in fact it eats all the mangoes within reach until there aren't any left except on the branches that are just a little ways further up or across the tree hmm the ancestor thinks If I creep over to get that mango, I may fall out of the tree and become lunch. I'll just wait here for another mango to grow. So what do you think happens? Perhaps the ancestor can wait long enough, but more likely it grows weak. Its muscles atrophy due to the lack of motion, and it falls out of the tree, either dead or ready to become lunch. In this case, anxiety is not protective, but inhibiting, interfering, destructive, and disruptive. OCD has similar anxiety, crippling, overwhelming, obstructive. For Rob, it ruled his life. The unknown thought that propelled his anxiety may not have been readily available, but learning how to control his anxiety was well within his grasp, like the mango in our ancestor's example. He just needed practice.
2: Rob kept his five o'clock appointment faithfully. I knew he was getting better when he started showing up and encroaching on my real five o'clock. As his need to park between the lines began to abate, he started telling me of the enormous impact it had on other areas of his life, his work, marriage, and relationships with friends. Eventually, I fished, eventually I switched the five o'clock to six and kept Rob in the five slot. He continued his he continued to practice his new way of thinking, recognizing his anxiety, rating it, remembering that anxiety is like a wave, and then trying to reflect on the thought that made him nervous to begin with. It was as if he had learned a whole new set of skills. He never did figure out what had started the anxiety to begin with, but did tell me once about a kindergarten teacher whom he had despised. He had been a very creative child, but the teacher had insisted he draw and color between the lines. Hey.
0: Another chapter of Dr. Joe's new book out this weekend, February 19th. Bookstores everywhere, Amazon. Anywhere you would purchase a book, you can purchase Unleashing the Power of Respect, The I Am Approach by Dr. Joe Schrant.
1: Dr. Joe Schrant, Thank you, Mark. And really, folks, I, I, I would be greatly honored if you did purchase one. Take a look at it. It's a window into who we are and why we do what we do. And that's the story that we just read. My, my co-host, Tom and Mark, read My Five O'Clock Patient, which, as you just heard, was about a man who had obsessive-compulsive. In the book, I make it clear that we don't use the word disorder, it's condition, but because people are so used to it, I hope people can just sort of tolerate that we're calling it OCD. And the difference between obsessive-compulsive disorder and obsessive-compulsive personality, people with the personality uh, to have everything in place, it doesn't bother them at all. It just bothers everyone around them. This is what personality conditions are about. They really should be called interpersonal conditions because it doesn't bother the person who has it. But the obsessive compulsive, that, that behavior can be so restrictive. This is part of why the I am is there as well. That's still an I am, right? Obsessive compulsive is still an I am. Major depression is still an I am. Psychosis is still an I am. But if you don't like it, you can begin to change it. And what you think affects what you feel. So the I am approach is saying we're doing the best we can. How many times have you doubted that? How many times has your inner critic said you should be doing better?
0: Tom, Mark, has that ever happened to you guys? Hell, yeah, It's a, it's a common it's a common, uh, it's a common thought process, right? You could be doing better. You could be more productive. You could be working harder. You could be doing this, that, or the other thing better, right? I mean, that's what i would i would suggest is common it's mm-hmm. unfortunately common but it is common Tom, and it's sometimes a, it's sometimes a motivator
1: right it it can be it certainly can be
2: a motivator it can also cripple you yeah
1: um has that ever happened to
2: you oh absolutely it's i mean it's been a source of anxiety for me too like it in years back i think uh but the biological domain plays a big role in my anxiety uh is that i was having like four cups of coffee in the morning which i i still do but that's pretty much no caffeine for the rest of the day save for maybe a diet pepsi but not not too long ago i was also drinking energy drinks which in moderation here and there uh but i was drinking them religiously maybe two a day combined with extra large black coffee from dunkin donuts and those get your heart racing. That it, it builds up. You're not you're not immune to caffeine after years of drinking it. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> Very true. That would
0: that would add to your already existing anxiety. Would the caffeine would just accelerate it?
2: Oh, a thousand percent. That's interesting. And yet you kept doing it. That's true. It took it took a big, big like unkinked hose. You know, I have nothing to compare it to, but I imagine it's was an anxiety attack. Hmm. I've been much more careful ever since. Yeah, yeah.
1: Ca- caffeine can certainly do this. You know, um, it has an interesting structure. It replicates, in some ways, adrenaline, and so we get this this strange rush-like feeling, which can turn into anxiety. But what the am is saying is what you think affects what you feel. This is basic cognitive behavioral therapy. So if we begin thinking we should be doing better, we shouldn't you know, be surprised that we begin to feel either angry, anxious, or sad. Because what you're basically saying to yourself is you're not good enough. And if you're not good enough, it means you have less value. And if you have less value, you could be kicked out of your protective group because that's part of who we are as human beings. We're these social animals. The I'm saying, okay, so that's an I am. But if you don't like that, you can change it. You just have to recognize that it's happening. That's the first thing. Just like in the four R's, the first R is recognize. Okay? You recognize that you're anxious. And then you rate it between 1 and 10. You remember it gets less. And then you reflect, which can be really difficult. But even that's an I am. We can do this. You know, uh, anxiety is real, and right now in our world, there is a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of stress, not just because of COVID, but because of all the other social turmoil that's happening. And that's why I really put unleashing out there right now. Think about these words of the title, unleashing the power of respect. It is powerful. When's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? So how do we really do that? How can we, even today, do some small change just to unleash that power? What do you guys think? Did you do anything today to remind someone of their value?
0: You know, a lot of uh, what we do, what we like to do is, is simply appreciate people, right? So... The, the act of saying, I appreciate you, you know, not what you've done, but I appreciate you, I think goes a long way with people. Um, it takes them aback sometimes. I, um, somebody held the door for me uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I remember looking at him and said, I appreciate you. And he wasn't ready for that. You know? And he, it had stopped him in his tracks, and he wanted to talk about it, as opposed to, I appreciate you doing that act. I said I appreciate you. And um and it was it was interesting because I say it a lot but I mean it and I think it does affect people in a very positive way because they're feeling appreciated not the act of what they've done but the person who they are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're reminding them of their value. Right. Interesting cuz what one of the things I think about with those words you're welcome is It's saying, you know, I'm not going to withhold from you as well. Hmm. When somebody says thank you, and the other person says you're welcome, for me, it means you're part of my group. Remember, human beings are interested in the three things, right? Resources, residence, and relationships, which correspond to food, mating, and shelter in the rest of the animal kingdom. But we want things. We want those resources. We need a safe place to live, and we want the relationship with somebody else. There's a lot of competition for those things, and there has been for a long time. That's part of why we were increasing our own value by decreasing somebody else's. I want a better relationship. I want more resources. I want a safer place to live. And when we keep doing that, we should not be surprised we have war. This was the thesis of outsmarting anger, which was all about respect. It was the foundation for unleashing. But when somebody says, thank you, you are acknowledging the value of somebody else, that they have done something for you, that they have shared either residence, resource, or relationship. Thank you. And then the other person, 90% of the time, will say, you're welcome. I'm not afraid that you're going to take my resources, my residence, my relationships. You're part of my tribe. Let me share what I have with you, which will only enhance my own value. Because now I'm safer. Because my tribe is larger. And this is why I keep saying, you know, we're one tribe. It's called humanity. We don't need to keep dividing ourselves into this little cluster, that little cluster. As soon as we have that group mentality, we create group war. My group is good and your group isn't. I'm part of the in-group, you're the out-group. And the other group's thinking the same thing. And then we have this competition. Again, that's an I am. That's the way we have been doing business, but we don't have to keep doing that. You know, in in, um, my five o'clock patient, we talk about the prefrontal cortex, which is really about anticipating the future. If we keep doing this limbic thing, well, what do people really think will happen next? You know, probably destroy
2: ourselves. You're being reactive and not proactive in that sense, aren't you, Mark?
0: Yes, I believe that is what you would be doing.
2: That is indeed.
1: And for people who are listening, that's Mark's phrase. Better to be proactive than reactive. But why, Mark? Why is it better to be proactive than reactive?
0: Well, you certainly eliminate a lot of anxiety, right? I mean, if, if, if you wait until the last second, you're going to be stressed, anxious, rushing, desperate, crisis mode. But if you know there's something that you need to do and you're acting proactively, then you eliminate that because you've done the tasks that needed to be done well in advance of it becoming in a crisis mode. So it's always better to be proactive so you're not forced to be reactive. Let's talk about strategies around anxiety. You mentioned the four R's in that chapter, Dr. Joe. Help us understand that better.
1: Sure. First of all, it's, it's important to remember that anxiety is a perfectly normal part of being human, right? And as I talk about in, in that chapter, our ancient ancestors, if they didn't have anxiety, they wouldn't have survived. Anxiety is part of the survival limbic system of our brain. It is the fight and flight And freeze response, it's the flight branch of fight, flight, freeze. We're faced with a predator. We think we can beat it. We will approach it and try to fight it and get it to change. In humans, that's anger. We approach someone with the intention to get them to change. Start doing something, stop doing something. Sometimes we're faced with a danger we know we can't beat it. So we want to just get the heck out of there. That's the flight response. In humans, that's anxiety. That's what we're talking about. We have some idea that something horrible will happen, so we want to escape. And then sometimes we're faced with a predator that we know we can't beat, but we can't get away from. The next best strategy is to freeze, become invisible, and hope the danger passes. And in humans, I think that's depression, where we know we can't beat it, we just can't get away from it. There's actually a fourth one that people are starting to think about Called fawn, F A W N, which is where you face with a predator and you're trying to talk it out of hurting you. We'll spend some time talking about that in another episode because I think fawn is one of the real resistance to the I am approach, as if respect itself is fawning to someone as opposed to confronting them, as opposed to saying, you know what? I'm just interested in what you're doing. It doesn't mean that I disrespect you. So at some point, I think it would be really good for us to talk about that particular strategy because I think it's there. And I think it, uh, it can be misinterpreted And that when you do something with respect and you try to understand somebody else's point of view, it can be misinterpreted as fawning. And then there's a power differential that gets created. I think that's going to be the main resistance to unleashing the power of respect. We will misinterpret respect for that fourth F. But to get back to your question, Mark Stokes, the four R's are a way to really manage your anxiety. notice I don't say cope. I'm talking about managing. Coping sounds like you're just hanging on with your fingernails. I want people to manage their lives. So the first R is just to recognize. Recognition. You think, okay, I'm feeling this stuff in my body.
2: That means
1: I'm anxious. It means that my limbic system has activated. My limbic system, this ancient part of me who is all about survival, has noticed some danger in my environment. So in obsessive compulsive with Rob, he wasn't able to really identify what this horrible outcome would be if he did not do these behaviors. So what would happen is he'd get this automatic thought, something horrible will happen, Someone probably someone will die, some catastrophe will happen unless I park my car perfectly. So he spends time with that behavior. And whenever he gets the behavior right, the anxiety decreases. That's a positive reinforcement in your brain because we don't like feeling that anxiety. So thank goodness, my anxiety has decreased, which means I've saved someone's life. Something good has happened. But as soon as that anxiety begins to creep back in, he now has an obsession, and he has to do a compulsive behavior to decrease the anxiety. That's what obsessive compulsive means. You have this thought that comes into your brain, but you have trained your brain to create a behavior to decrease the anxiety. The anxiety decreases, you get the reinforcement, the anxiety comes back, your brain says, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Go do that same behavior. We have a lot of ways of doing that, not just in obsessive compulsive. There are certain things that we train our brains to do that we think will alleviate and alleviate this anxiety, even if it may be completely detrimental. So the first R, just recognize it. Oh, yeah, I know what this is. This is anxiety. Perfectly normal part of being human. It's my I am. And then you do another thing. And you rate it. Between 1 and 10. 10 is panic. Panic and people, people experience panic. It is this completely limbic irrational anxiety. It's so big. Everything begins to activate, and you are in a panic because on some level you think I'm going to die right now. But you rate it between one and 10. One is vigilance. No one is ever a zero. There are very few people who are a zero when it comes to anxiety, because we're always a little bit aware of our surroundings. We are survival machines. So we're vigilant, aware, yeah, okay, a little bit anxious, but not. Not so anxious that it's going to interfere with your life. You're just aware of your surroundings. We all do that. So you rate it between one and 10. And with Rob in the story, he rates it a 12. It can't be a 12. It's between one and 10. And if you're a 10, then you're panicking. Are you panicking? And you've heard in the story what he was able to do. He was immediately able to begin reflecting. You know what? I'm not panicking. I'm still a seven out of 10. Fine. And then you say, but you're not a 10. Because anxiety is like a wave. This is the third R, to remember. It combines the limbic memory with the rating function. And now you remember, Wow, it's like a wave. It goes up, but it always comes down. And I have said this to so many people. If you think anxiety is never going to go away, what happens to anxiety? ever goes away. Because what you think affects what you feel. How cool is that? And so many people have gone, wait a second. What, what does that mean? Anxiety is under your control. What you think affects what you feel. But sometimes we have these automatic thoughts. We're not even aware that we thought it. There's danger, there's danger. And so your limbic system activates and all you feel is anxiety which is a flight response because you fear that you are going to be eaten by a predator. So you remember, it's like a wave. It goes up and always comes down. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you remember that anxiety always gets less, you know what happens to anxiety? Gets less, might be a seven, not six. Wow, it's a six, it really does go away. Now it's a five. And then you can begin to reflect. What was I thinking that made me anxious to begin with? And for every thought that has increased anxiety, you'll be able to create one to decrease it. But that will take practice. It'll be sometimes difficult to know what it was that you're thinking because it's automatic. It's so fast, you practiced it so many times, that you're like an Olympic ice skater. It's, it's almost muscle memory, you, you, you just do it. You don't even realize you've done it, but what your brain feels is anxiety. What was I thinking? And in the story, Rob said, I think I'm gonna die. He said, you know I'm gonna die, I know I'm gonna die. What's the opposite thought to that? He said, hey, as long as you're thinking about it, you're not dead. What? As long as you're thinking, oh my gosh, I know I'm gonna die, it means you're alive. So that's what Rob began to practice. Because on some level, his anxiety was that he did think either he was gonna die or somebody else was gonna die, but the thought meant that he was still alive. If you guys are interested in this audience, you can just go to your search engine, Type in my last name, Shrand, S-H-R-A-N-D. And then the words manage anxiety. And people have looked at this so many times. What will pop up after the ads is a blog of mine on psychology today. It's an old blog, I must admit. Wrote it many, many years ago. But it's a simple technique to manage anxiety. It goes over the four R's. It actually tells the story about Rob without telling Rob's story. Uh, But the same idea. I think I'm going to die. That means you're not dead. So check it out a simple technique to manage anxiety and practice it practice it and practice it. And you will be able to manage your anxiety. It's an I am rather than self criticize, I should be doing better, I shouldn't have obsessive compulsive. Okay, this is my I am It's part of my biological domain. It's influenced by my social and home domain because I think something horrible will happen if I don't do this. And, you know, we all have these little obsessions in some ways. If I don't do this, something bad will happen. That's what I mean by your self-critic. Sometimes I think I'm just not good enough. If you think that, don't be surprised at what you feel. If you don't like it, you can change it. You know, this first rule, the first truth of the I am small changes can have big effects. But you control no one, you influence everyone is the second rule, the second truth. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. So I don't think Rob ever meant to keep me waiting for an appointment, but he did. And I hope when people read the story, they don't think that I was being disrespectful by telling him his appointment was at five, but really making it at six. That's why I call it my five o'clock patient, because he did want to come in. But for the first several months, what was going on in his I am. He wanted desperately to come in, but he just couldn't. So I made a small change, too. I changed the time of his appointment. I told him one thing so that he could get there at the 5 o'clock time and be able to get in by 6. Hopefully, people don't think that that was disrespectful. It was not intended to be.
2: Because I knew that he
1: was I hope so. there. yeah. Because I, I knew he couldn't get there at 4 o'clock because he had some other things to that was going on. So Thanks. I really appreciate you guys reading the stories on the air. Folks, if you're listening, please consider going to Amazon or your bookstores and buying a copy of Unleashing the Power of Respect, the I Am Approach. This is a book that I really want out there. I want people to understand who they are why they do what they do, looking through the eyes of my patient teachers, people who taught me a lot by giving me the amazing honor and opportunity of sitting with them in their time. Thanks, everyone. See you next week on the Dr. Joe Show.
0: Thanks, Dr. Joe. Thanks, everybody. Stretch the kindness, brush with madness. Is it sadness or just a show of